0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
0: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta-Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University.
1: And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Policy Forum Pod is based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. We offer a range of future focus programs ranging from public policy to climate change and international development. To find out more about the amazing range of programs that we have, visit us at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And
0: Anna Greta, what's happening today? Today, we're excited to bring you the third episode in our mini-series on valuing care in public policy. In episode one, we spoke with Millie Rooney about a framework for more caring public policy. And in episode two, before the Easter break, we talked about Australia's recent federal budget and what work is needed on the infrastructure of care, our social security network. Today on the pod, we're about to have a conversation with what we consider to be the third pillar of caring in public policy that is, caring for the environment. And we've got an extraordinary, very special guest with us, someone with decades of experience working on the issues of climate change, particularly in the Pacific, with us to do that today. Sharon, would you like to introduce our guest? I would love to, Anna Greta.
1: I'm really excited about this conversation. We have with us today Dr Ian Fry. Ian is an international environmental law and policy expert, focused primarily on mitigation policies associated with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Paris Agreement and related instruments. He is a senior lecturer at the Australian National University's Fenner School of Environment and Society He was the Ambassador for Climate Change and Environment for the Government of Tuvalu from 2015 to 2019, and he's worked for the Government of Tuvalu for over two decades. And very excitingly, Ian has just been appointed as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights in the Context of Climate Change for a three-year term. That's a new position that was established by the United Nations Human Rights Council last October. And while issues around a clean environment have long been recognised as a a human right, that right was formally recognised by the Human Rights Council last year. And this new special rapporteur role is very significant in making the critical connection between adverse climate events, both sudden and slow-onset disasters – that undermine human rights, and how those adverse effects can be prevented, and how human rights can be protected. And of course, all of this connects to critical themes of this mini series: care for people and care for the planet and environment, and it makes that connection so powerfully. So it's wonderful to have Ian with us today.
2: Ian, welcome. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Ian, we're going to start with a broad question uh, just to set the scene. What drew you to work on climate change as a, as a challenge?
2: Well, I originally started when I worked for Greenpeace many years ago and, and attended a Pacific Island Leaders forum in the Cook Islands in 1997, it was, and, and gave a briefing to the then Prime Minister of Tuvalu. And, and he invited me then to come on their delegation to a climate change meeting, which created the Kyoto Protocol. And I, I left Greenpeace a year after that and started working for the Tuvalu government. And, you know, just going to Tuvalu, you just, Realize, you know, how close they are to the impacts of climate change. It, it, it it leaves a sort of deep impression in your mind when you go to a coral atoll country that's just hanging on the edge of existence, I guess.
0: So I'm, I imagine this has been somewhat of an emotional roller coaster the last two decades, seeing s- clear-cut success and some of the work you've done, which really changed how we think about and how we approach the problem-solving element of it. But there's also been plenty of disappointment, uh, particularly perhaps from the Australian perspective. What's kept you working in the area over the last two decades?
2: Well, I guess, I guess it's the fact that you know, just seeing my colleagues in Tuvalu. And their enthusiasm to to get things done, you know, and and just realise how on the edge they are to the impacts of climate change. You just can't help but uh, want to do more.
1: Ian, you you mentioned there, you know, you see the the impacts on countries like Tuvalu and just how close they are to the edge. And we've talked before on on this podcast about some of the incredible diplomacy on climate change that's been led by Pacific Island countries and by other small island developing states who, who really are directly threatened in a way that many other nation states are not. Can you talk us through a little bit about how that diplomacy has evolved over your time of working on climate change and the kind of role that Pacific Island countries in particular have played really in leading much thinking about how we need to respond to to climate change.
2: Yes, well, you know, Small Island States, which formed the sort of alliance of Small Island States, has been really at the forefront of, of climate change diplomacy. When the Climate Convention came into being in 1992, the Small Island States, you know, said, this is not enough, we need extra action. So they, they pushed for a, a protocol, which led to the Kyoto Protocol. So there's been a long history of very strong activism by small island states. And, and in the Pacific, that, that has grown enormously in, in, in recent years, so, you know, where small islands from the Pacific have been very active. Some, some of the, Leaders from from the Pacific, uh, Hilda Heine from the Marshall Islands, has been very active, and her deputy was very strong in forming this high ambition coalition in the lead up to the Paris agreement, and so that was quite strong the The former Prime Minister of, of Tuvalu was very active in in, uh, climate change negotiations. He stayed for the whole of the Paris Agreement. He was the only Pacific Island leader to do that, to to make sure that they got a a good outcome. And there are many other leaders and, you know, young activists who are, you know, very strongly engaged from the Pacific in the climate change negotiations.
1: Ian, the Pacific Island nations have been such a powerhouse, really, in in terms of leading that diplomacy, but within the the, the power hierarchy that, that that is international relations, those nation states are often on the margins they're often not the states that are that are leading the international debates. What was your experience like of representing um, a small nation state like Tuvalu, and trying to negotiate with some of those major players and indeed major emitters, who really need to come on board if we're if we're going to shift the balance on climate change? What 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 was the what was it like being in the centre of those politics?
2: Well, I, I guess I've had many experiences in that regard. I, I guess you know most notably you know, around the Paris Agreement because we we were pushing very hard to get as much as we could. And, you know, we had a number of sort of preparatory meetings in a lead-up to Paris, and, and certainly... One of the key issues that small island states were trying to get up into the Paris Agreement was this issue of loss and damage, which is basically, you know, how to deal with, with countries that are already being affected by climate change. You know, no matter how much money you put into adaptation, there are still issues around, you know, how to deal with those countries that have been hit by climate change. So, you know, I, I attended, you know, with the Prime Minister Tuvalu, bilateral meetings with White House advisors in, in New York. And then in Paris itself, the Prime Minister Tuvalu had two key bilateral meetings in the, you know, very late at night with Senator John Kerry, who was Secretary of State to the US at that time. And you know, to try and convince him that this whole issue of loss and damage was critical for small island states, and we we'd up to that stage had huge pushback from the United States on that issue. They just saw it as, uh, you know, a requirement for liability and compensation. But we we tried to convince him that there had to be some measure to help countries who are already affected by climate change. So it, it, it's a challenge dealing with those big countries. The major emitting countries. And of course, when we were negotiating the loss and damage issue within the group of 77 countries, all the developing countries, we had to bring on board all the developing countries to support that initiative. And of course, China was one of those and, and, you know, they, they were hesitant to be engaged in that sort of discussion. Uh, I guess because they are seen as a major emitter and they felt that there might be some liability requirements for that. So we, we had to work with them to get an outcome that, that supported us. But the crucial issue is, is that, We work as coalition. So I worked as part of the Alliance of Small Island States on issues, but also with the least developed countries, Tuvalu is a least developed country. So those, the 47 odd least developed countries around the world, we work as a caucus. We identify people to be spokespeople on different issues. And, you know, they lead the negotiations on those issues. And, and we, we meet together. We, we work out our positions and then, you know, present those views. And it, it's hard for big countries to ignore, you know, a large group of, developing country, particularly the poorest developing countries, you know, to address their concerns about climate change. But nevertheless, it's still a struggle uh, and it will continue to be a struggle.
1: Ian, we um, we spoke with uh, Siobhan McDonnell late last year after the conference of, of parties in Glasgow, um, and she expressed, expressed some disappointment about the the lack of movement on um, establishing a fund around loss and damage. Do you think that the politics on this is starting to shift and that we we are, despite things in Glasgow perhaps not going quite as, as some had hoped, that we are moving towards an international recognition of the importance of something like a, a, a loss and damage fund or recognising what it is that small island states particularly are likely to lose and the damage not just economically but but
2: culturally and socially yes i i think it we will get there. I, I mean, it, it's going to be a struggle and and I don't think the idea is well enough formed as to where that money is going to come from. And I, I think that was the problem in Glasgow, that that the, the the concept was there, but the real nuts and bolts of how this fund would work, where the money would come from, hadn't been well developed. And I guess there was you know, reluctance in Glasgow to sort of push an initiative that didn't really have enough detail behind it. But I think there is work to really, you know, come through with, you know, the, trying to identify the sources of funding. And if, if you think about the impacts that, you know, recent cyclones have had in the Pacific, the amount of money required to deal with just those impacts is enormous. And, and you know, I think Cyclone Winston had affected Fiji, you know, costs an order of $4 million, over $4 million. So we need, you know, substantial funding to deal with those sorts of impacts. And so I think there is progress towards that, but it, it, it's slow. And, and again, there's this sort of alarm bells ringing in some countries about, you know, this sort of idea of liability and compensation.
0: Ian, it's a remarkable and rich foundation on which your no most recent role might sit. Um, the UN has recently created this new position, the Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights in the Context of Climate Change. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that role, why it was created, and what you're going to try and achieve with this role.
2: It was uh, you know, through the lobbying of some countries, particularly small island states, that pushed for this position. Because you know climate change is a human rights issue. There, you know, there are people affected today by the impacts of climate change. So the the idea of this position is is to draw details, information from people about the impacts that are having on their lives that climate change is impacting on their lives. To document that and pro- pro- try and provide processes for dealing with those impacts. So it's quite a broad mandate that I have, and and it's a challenging one, of course, because really climate change affects everybody. You know, as we've just seen with the floods in Lismore, you know, there are people very close to us who are affected by climate change, and there are people in much worse situations also, suffering impacts and one of the critical issues that I want to look at is the whole issue of people being displaced from their homes as a consequence of climate change. The recent IPCC report working to report you know suggests that you know people are already being displaced as a consequence of climate change. In fact, there are suggestions that over 1,000 people per day on average are being displaced as a consequence of climate change-related events, whether that's flooding, droughts, or other major events. So for those people, you know, we have to find right means of protection, particularly the people who are displaced across international borders, They're not defined as refugees under the Refugee Convention. And so they fall through the cracks as far as, you know, giving proper protection to those people. So I certainly will be trying to look at what measures, what legal measures can we provide for those people who are displaced across international borders as a consequence of climate change? Can we give them the same sort of protection we give to refugees?
1: Ian, one of the debates around the international regime for, for for refugees and and particularly the Convention for Refugees is that it was drafted a very long time ago, it was then updated, but that was a long time ago, and that the refugee convention perhaps doesn't address the issues that we are now grappling with as we see mass movements of people across borders and for many different reasons and those numbers that you give in terms of people who are displaced as a result of climate change are are just horrifying. Do you think we need to revisit the, the Refugee Convention Or is that opening up a can of worms that would be in itself very problematic? And do we need another way of thinking about how we can protect the human rights of people who are displaced and then find themselves having to move across borders?
2: That question is something I'll certainly be looking at. You know, is it easier to rework the convention, you know, on on refugees and, and have a new definition Or is it better to have a separate sort of international agreement to deal with those people? And there are different views on this. You know, people say, well, we could redefine the term persecution to mean climate change is a form of persecution of people. And therefore, you can then sort of fit those people within the definition of of the the Convention on, on Refugees. But But others would say we need something different. You know, we need you know a special category of people and a special legal protection forum for people that are displaced as a consequence of climate change. So I'll certainly be looking at that issue and and you know finding the path that requires the least amount of effort to get there. You know, because these people are falling through the cracks, and we've we've got to make sure that we give them the right form of protection.
1: And I think that has to be one of the most pressing human rights issues that that we're facing internationally at the moment. And it would be fantastic to have you back on the pod um, a little down the track to to see where you're heading on on that particular issue, which is so important but so challenging. But for for this episode of of the pod, is it's part of a, a mini series that we we have on care in public policy, and we're wanting to highlight the value of care, the importance of care in designing and implementing public policy. And in previous episodes, we've talked about care on an individual level, as well as at the systemic level, or what Millie Rooney, one of our guests, describes as the infrastructure of care. And care for the environment, care for the planet, is our third pillar and the subject of of this conversation today. And, and I know that in your role as a Special Rapporteur for the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights in the Context of Climate Change, one of your roles will be around synthesising knowledge, including Indigenous and local traditional knowledge, and identifying good practices and strategies and policies to address how human rights can be integrated into climate change policies. And and I'm wondering, Ian, if you can talk us through a little about what care for and connection to nature and to the environment means for Pacific Island communities. And are there particular Indigenous and, and local knowledges that shape the way Pacific Islander communities think about that connection and that care for the natural environment?
2: Pacific Island countries have sort of lived as part of their environment, for the many thousands of years that they've been in the Pacific and so that there is that strong connection and it, and it's part of the culture of all all the different Pacific island communities and countries that are around and 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 so that understanding and caring for the for the natural environment is critical in in making that connection particularly you know having to confront the impacts of climate change which are which are Far greater than what, you know, Pacific Island countries can deal with by themselves. You know, in my own experience in being in Tuvalu, that, you know, there are local adaptation strategies to deal with severe weather events. You know, local fisher folk fish in certain areas in good weather and then fish in other areas in bad weather. And that, that's an adaptation strategy. And there are, you know, a whole host of other sorts of initiatives, actions that, that people take to, you know, to protect the environment from these impacts. And of course, you know, understanding the, 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 the cycles of, of nature, uh, of the climate uh, are, you know, intrinsic in, in, in their understanding of, of you know, the, the natural systems. And, and, and trying to bring that to the international community is, is, is going to be a real challenge. And it's not just Pacific Island people as well. I, I I was on on a online conference just a week ago with people from the uh, indigenous people from the Amazon who were speaking to members of the European Parliament, and and they're in a dire situation. Uh, the the you know the rainforests are being cut down at an enormous rate at, at you know under the current regime within Brazil. And so they're, they're, you know, making a strong plea to the members of the European Parliament to, to help them, you know, resolve this issue of deforestation, which is, which is, you know, an absolute tragedy just happening at the moment.
0: So they're extraordinarily powerful examples of how indigenous knowledge of of location is is so important in our adaptation strategy and understanding the full ramifications of, of the future that's ahead. Ian, how can we take these local solutions and make them global? How how do you think the rest of the world can learn from from these individual cases that you've mentioned?
2: There's a lot of understanding there of how nature works. And so those understandings have to be brought to the the international community to, to get them to understand, you know, just you know, what, what is happening to the lands of, of Indigenous peoples. You know, if we, if we look at Inuit people in, in Alaska, the, th- the permafrost is melting at the moment because of higher air temperatures, and that's affecting their, the ecosystem where they live, the ground on which they're living, living, which is normally f- solid because of permafrost is starting to sink. And so the, these are the challenges that these people are facing. And so we... It has to be a two way conversation. These are global impacts affecting, you know, local communities and local communities are trying to find solutions to these issues. But the real solutions, a lot of it, you know, has to come from the major polluting countries. And, you know, that, that's the real challenge. It's not just the adaptation strategies, but also, you know, what we do about mitigation. And, and that's, that's the real challenge is to how do we, you know, get the big emitting countries to realize the impacts they're having.
0: That's such an extraordinarily powerful and important part of what's happening to us on an individual level in small parts of the world and appreciating that on a global scale. Uh, that, that's the challenge of climate action globally. We're going to take a really quick break just here and we'll be back in a moment.
2: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: Welcome back. We're here with Ian Fry in the third episode of our mini-series on care in public policy. We've been talking about how caring for the environment is an important challenge, particularly when we're thinking about climate change.
1: And we've been having uh, an incredibly powerful conversation about some of the challenges that the world faces. Uh, Ian, in in late 2021, the United Nations Human Rights Council recognised having a healthy environment as a human right, and the establishment of the, the position of special rapporteur that, that you now hold was, was part of that recognition within the Human Rights Council. But as we've been discussing, there's a grave threat for, for many people. We've talked about the threat to the Pacific Islands, to Inuit people in Alaska, to communities in the Amazon, where deforestation is taking a shocking toll. And of course, to communities here in Eastern Australia, which are, are, are facing massive flood damage and in in the face of increasingly frequent and severe disasters, there are obviously enormous challenges facing us. What are some of the first steps that we need to take in order to protect lives and livelihoods, but to begin to think about these issues and these challenges as human rights issues rather than climate issues alone or perhaps economic issues alone as they're sometimes presented? How do we start to bring human rights into the conversation?
2: You know, it's a big question, I guess. And I guess there are, there are a couple of ways of looking at this. Cer- certainly, you know, we know that there are impacts on people and, and therefore their rights to exist, their rights to housing, the rights of, you know, children and women to be able to survive, from these impacts is affecting people's everyday lives. And we, we have to, you know, see how we can address some of those issues critically. The other part of it is, is we also have to look at the fact that actions to address climate change may also have human rights impacts, and I'll certainly be looking at those. For for instance, you know, uh, mining of minerals to produce batteries for electric vehicles is already having human rights impacts. The creation of hydro dams is displacing people from their land. So this is the challenge that, you know, we have to deal with the impacts of climate change, but there are also impacts of taking action to address climate change that are affecting everyday lives of people. So we, we have to look at it in that context as well. And so matching those two, You know, is going is going to be a real challenge, but it's certainly critical that we we really put a human face on this on climate change. It, It it has been for many years, you know, an economic argument, and a lot of the economic argument has been run by the fossil fuel industry, you know, and and indicating that you know the world runs on fossil fuels. But we now have to put a human face on on this and 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 say these are the impacts and therefore that brings on board business to be more accountable for what they're doing and you know calling on boards on, on you know directors of companies to be accountable for the actions they take the economic actions they take and their impacts on humans and and the rights of humans so i'll certainly be looking at that issue in more detail the the responsibility of business to do more to uh, you know, to address human rights concerns through the actions of business.
1: Ian, I'm, I'm conscious that I'm asking this question at a time when it's it's very early days for you, and these are issues that will obviously unfold over your tenure as, as special rapporteur. But I think that point that you make about bringing a human face to these issues is is so incredibly powerful, and. I think about the politics over the last couple of decades of labour standards and, and corporate social responsibility, whereby a number of large multinational corporations that were identified as, as violating workers' rights were brought around to taking um, their their corporate social responsibility quite seriously through campaigns that tried to bring the voices of workers to, to a global audience. And, of course, then to, to some extent we saw that being co-opted by those same large multinationals um, to serve their own purposes with sometimes only minimal change in their behaviour. But we did start to see some shifts. And I'm wondering at this early stage if what, what your thinking is on how you, you actually start to bring the voices of people who are impacted both by climate change and the, the natural disasters that we often see around climate emergency, but also those people who are affected by adaptation and particularly the most vulnerable communities, how you bring those voices to this debate that is very often dominated by the major political and economic players.
2: Well, there are various forums for, for getting these public voices to to power, I guess, and and as we've seen, you know, in the World Economic Forum that meets every year, we've seen youth groups, indigenous peoples groups address that forum as a sort of major, you know, international forum that brings together world leaders and and corporate leaders. But I, I think we will also see a lot more voices through the courts. I think we'll see youth groups, you know, bring in cases. And various legal formats to address these issues, and I, I think uh, litigation, you know, is one way of bringing the voices of affected people to to the international community and to business leaders, and I, I think you know this this will start to resonate with with business leaders that they are going to be liable for these impacts and that they have to have a dialogue with people who are being affected so i you know i think that's one avenue through through the courts that are going to bring bring affected people and businesses together to to work out solutions
1: and i think that that point that you make about the voice of young people in these debates and the, the quite incredible leadership that we've seen from young people, from uh, leadership at, at major summits you know, through to, to the climate strikes that we've seen around the world. And we also saw that really interesting case in Australia recently, the Sharma case, where uh, young people brought an action against the Minister for the Environment for not protecting their right to a healthy environment. And of course, that case ultimately wasn't successful in Australia, but is a really um, powerful example of what you're talking about. And Ian, without necessarily wanting you to to comment on that particular case, I wonder how you see the possibility of litigation playing out. Is this something that you see happening on a case-by-case basis through national court systems, or do you see this as perhaps moving to an international level, and and do we have the capacity for international courts to perhaps turn their attention to human human rights violations in the context of climate change?
2: Well, I think there are a a number of legal avenues that people will try, try. and certainly the people of the Torres Strait have, uh, you know, uh, run... Run a case, and they've asked the Human Rights Committee to review their their situation, uh, and so that's one avenue. There will be sort of taught law where individuals will, will take you know companies to look, to courts for the damage they're co- occurring, but there will also be international fora as well. in In Glasgow, Tuvalu and Antigua and Barbuda sort of formed a sort of compact to look at. Uh, whether they could take a case through the law of the sea through the International Tribunal on the Law of the sea against the impacts of climate change from the warming oceans, and we 've heard you know that Vanuatu wants to take a case to the International Court of Justice uh, seeking a, an advisory opinion whether there is a responsibility to protect current and future generations from the impacts of climate change, so we 're seeing. These sorts of legal approaches from a variety of angles, and I guess uh, you know some are working and some are failing because of the uh, you know inadequacy of of some laws, national laws, to deal with these issues. And I think we'll see legislation being developed and hopefully, you know, a strengthening of international law to to give these rights to people so that they can seek legal. Uh, responses to these sorts of cases. So I I guess we'll see uh, from all different legal angles, we'll see people reacting.
0: I wonder if we could take that into the perspective of cultural identity. Many Pacific communities, of course, are reliant on a healthy ocean and on fish stocks. And as we see sea level rise and global temperatures change, some of this is already being compromised with these sorts of elements under threat what does it mean for people's cultural identity in the pacific and the way of life
2: i guess the the biggest challenge around cultural identity is you know for some people will they be able to to stay where they they're currently living and that you know, and the, and this is the real challenge but particularly for the coral atoll nations uh, you know will they eventually have to move and this is a You know, a significant point of debate. If you, if you look at the previous president of Kiribati, Anote Tong was talking about uh, migration with dignity. So he was talking about, you know, people from Kiribati having to move to other countries, but to provide them with training so that they could mi- migrate, you know, and not become second-class citizens somewhere else. But the the current president of Kiribati has sort of nuanced that differently, you know, and, and, and said more about, you know, I Kiribati want to stay where they are. And, and that aligns more with how the Tuvalu government has, has positioned itself on this issue, that the cultural identity is critical, in, you know, in being in the, on the land and where they come from. And so, you know, there, there are these ongoing challenges to cultural identity, particularly from people being displaced but also, you know, through, through the loss of their livelihoods as a consequence of climate change. You know, in, in 2015, uh, Cyclone Pam hit Tuvalu and, and washed water right across three of the islands of Tuvalu. And, and that destroyed infrastructure. It destroyed the freshwater supplies. It killed crops. And so families just had no option but to move. From that island to the capital Funafuti, and so you know that identity of being on from that island, you know, and the particular cultural identity of that island had, you know, has been taken away from those people, and and this is the ongoing challenge: is how much of the identity will be taken away as a consequence of climate change.
0: This uh, question about habitability and whether or not we'll be able to stay in particular parts as the climate changes is one that I'm sure resonates across all parts of the globe. And I know in the Australian context, we think about the impact of heat, particularly in the northern part of Australia and in the centre, and the impact that will have on, on particularly on Indigenous people and their connection with land. This is a really difficult question, but how can we ensure that cultural national identity and connections are maintained if people are unable to live in in places that they've habitated for a long, long time? What happens to their citizenship? What happens to that concept of of cultural and national identity?
2: That's a huge challenge. And I, I'm not sure I can answer that. You know, that that's up for up to those people to decide how they wish to maintain their identity. And, and, and no doubt there are local coping mechanisms to deal with that. I, I'm not sure, you know, th- that's an easy one to answer. I, I've certainly, there have been some politicians in Australia and past politicians who've had uh, made commentaries about this, you know, the 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 then National Party leader sort of mockingly said, well, Pacific Islanders can just come and pick fruit in Australia. And the former Labor Party Prime Minister said, well, you know, they can all come and live in Australia as long as we have the rights to their their fishing rights, which again was another insensitive comment. So, uh, you know, it's up to the people themselves to decide how they identify if they're you know with their cultures, if they're moved from their land,
1: Ian, I, I think those those comments that you you quoted from various uh, Australian members of Parliament are are really appalling, <laughs> to be frank, in their lack of sensitivity to what to what is on the line for people um, in the context of climate change, and it is beholden to wealthy nations many of whom are very large emitters to, to do much more to prevent global temperatures from rising and to support adaptation. But as we've already discussed, you know, we're, we're beginning to um, to see the consequences. We're already beginning to see people moving across international borders as they, they flee from disasters and they flee from the, the impacts of climate change. Globally and, and including in the Pacific, we're beginning to, to hear some talk around the need to put systems in place to deal not with with just with refugees at a time of crisis, but to begin to put into place orderly systems to enable climate migration as we see rising sea levels and land loss. How important do you think it is for us to be begin to think now about what those those pathways for climate migration might be and how people can be supported to move before they're at the point of absolute crisis?
2: This is the real challenge, isn't it? Uh, I, it, it it's a difficult one to answer, you know, particularly as people, you know, particularly from the Pacific are so strongly connected to, to you know, the, the land in which they're living now as, as, and whether they will have to move or not and 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 it's a it's an ongoing debate there there are discussions in other parts of the world and and measures being looked at particularly in sub-saharan africa where migrating herds people are facing limited areas of where they can move now because of increased temperatures and so there are systems being put in place to look at how to regulate their movements so that they're not crossing the territory of another migrant herder so that it that, that avoids conflict. So there, there's work sort of looking at even at that level of trying to sort of try and find sort of Orderly migration, I guess you could say, to, to, uh, you know, to avoid these conflicts. But th- this is certainly going to be a real challenge in the future is, you know, how do you have controlled migration? How, how do you accept controlled migration across international borders when, when there is such at the moment a strong antithesis to, to that sort of migration? And, and, you know, this, this requires you know, a lot of discussions and, and you know, a lot of empathy at the international level to deal with those issues. And certainly that will, you know, be a significant challenge for me in this position.
1: In a- approaching these really complex and challenging issues with the empathy that you talk about and with a genuine care for human beings, I think is is going to be critical. And of course, if we look at Australia's history over the past decade or two in relation to asylum seekers and refugees, we've not seen a great deal of of empathy and care. But as you look around the world at the countries that are likely to be the, the recipient countries of any kind of migration, do you see any models that are already in place that might be able to handle an influx of people who are moving from the impacts of, of climate change in a way that genuinely protects their human rights.
2: To be honest, I'm I'm just sort of entering into that area of, of you know, understanding, I guess, you know, just taking on this position. position. So I, I, I honestly can't give you some very uh, good examples at this stage. You know, we... we because, because of the sort of you know differences in in uh, you know identifying these people as refugees as opposed to climate change displaced people, you know the international community is still struggling with a lot of refugees. And as we've seen, you know recently with with uh, concerns around Ukraine, the international community is constantly having to deal with these new crises of of refugees and and migration. And 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 it's hard to find you know good examples at the moment. We we certainly seen you know the caravans of people moving through uh, Central America up to the United States, and and it's clear that some of those people are already as a consequence of climate change, and and so you know there are challenges of how to deal with those people. And and this is going to be a growing problem. And finding good examples of how people are able to deal with that is is going to be a real challenge.
0: Ian, it's an extraordinarily important role that you've taken on and you're bringing to it such a a depth of experience, particularly uh, in communities which already understand deeply the impacts of climate change. We like to finish our episodes of, of this podcast with one question. And that is, if you had one particular piece of advice for policymakers in Australia, what would you like that to be?
2: There has to be a greater empathy for, for people who are displaced by climate change. Uh, and, and that's internally displaced within Australia. And that certainly you know, applies to First Nations communities in Australia who are already seeing this uh, as an issue. And, and greater empathy for them, and you know, and and for people who are displaced across international borders, because this this is really going to be you know a points of tension, and and we know that you know security services, the defence department already see this as a sort of what they call a, a threat multiplier. Uh, being climate change. And so they're having that dialogue, but it's not necessarily getting through to politicians. So I, I hope they, uh, the politicians of today start to listen to these concerns, you know, about people within Australia and from people outside Australia. And they have much greater empathy for, for their concerns because it'll only, you know, get worse and, and international tensions will only get worse as climate impacts uh, increase. That's
0: an amazing place to leave today's conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Ian Fry. Thank you very much.
1: So, Anna Greta, I thought that was an incredibly powerful conversation. It was a real privilege to be able to talk to Ian at this point in time when he's right at the beginning of what I think will be an extraordinary journey um, for him and for all of us in this new role of Special Rapporteur looking at issues of climate change and human
0: rights. Absolutely. And, you know, the heritage of experience that he brings to that role, I think, is quite extraordinary. That depth uh, and breadth of experience, particularly through the experience in in the Asia-Pacific and in the small island, Pacific Island states, uh, is such an important lens to bring to that role. And it really struck me that today's conversation does weave together a variety of the themes that we've been talking around caring, caring for individuals, caring for communities, caring for place, all really through that lens of climate change and particularly resonant in the Pacific Island experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the point that Ian made on, on several occasions during that conversation was the importance of empathy. And I think that really goes to the heart of these conversations that we're having around care. You know, without empathy in the way we think about, in the way we design, in the way that we implement public policy, we can't care for people. Um, And without empathy, I think we are in real trouble in the world. So the fact that Ian is bringing that to this role is so critically important. I think we're going to see some exciting things over the next few years.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Look, I know the, the work that I do around climate change, particularly thinking about the health impacts, I often consider the need for both the science of understanding the impacts of climate change and the imagination that we need when we're thinking about the future. And being able to do that through a lens of caring, I think, does ensure the best possible future we can have through extraordinarily challenging times. I think that's so true, Ana
1: Greta. And I think as we're thinking about those issues through the lens of caring, it also reminds us just how deeply connected we are as human beings to the places that matter so much to us. And we can't think about caring unless we bring those things together. Absolutely. And and that's one of the things that I loved about that conversation today. You know, Ian was doing that so powerfully.
0: Yeah. Hard things to put metrics on, but potentially one of the most important when we're considering both the lives that we lead now and the challenges that we have in our future. Absolutely.
1: And maybe we start to need to think a little differently about metrics. So we're not as caught up on the numbers, but we're thinking about the principles and 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 how we evaluate what's really meaningful for the people, for our planet. So there's the
0: challenge ahead of us. Absolutely. Listeners, we'll leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show notes on policyforum.net. And as always, we thank you very much for joining us today and to listening to what we found to be an amazing conversation. This series is produced by Policy Forum and we'd love to hear your feedback and your ideas for future episodes and future mini-series. You can join our Facebook group. If you type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you'll find a group of discussions not only on our podcast but on the other podcasts that come out of Crawford School, including Democracy, Sauce and the National Security Podcast. You can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. So from Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now.